0: Use your words. Use your words. This is a common refrain at the Cope household with two young kiddos. Kate and I will often find ourselves resolving disputes and untangling emotions and deciphering cries of despair with this simple request. Use your words. Because words have the capacity to bring clarity, don't they? Sure, they can be used to confuse and confound. They can be used to lie and to manipulate. But often words can be quite helpful. You know, from the simple and the mundane, can you get me a coffee, to the profound, will you marry me? When we want to send a message, words are some of the best tools we've got. Friends, what about God? If God is a personal and intelligent being, not just some spiritual force field like from Star Wars, what method or tool might he use to communicate? In the book of Psalms, we read, the heavens declare the glory of God. And so apparently there's something about this created world and the heavens and its beauty and its glory that that communicates something about God's beauty and God's glory. But is that the only way that he communicates with us? Better yet, if words are central to our relationships, and we're made in the image of God, might this be a clue as to how God would relate to us? To help answer these questions, friends, this morning we'll be in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, as we begin our Advent series. We've been celebrating Advent for the last couple of weeks, but this morning we in particular dive into verses 1 to 5 of John chapter 1, as we consider who Christ is and what was the purpose of his incarnation. If you're using one of the Bibles and the chairs provided, you'll find that on page 886. If you're new to Christianity, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, verse numbers are the little numbers. So chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. We'll have two sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. God's eternal word has come that he might bring life and light to all mankind. God's eternal word has come that he might bring life and light to all mankind. It'd be helpful to know as we prepare to read God's word that that these five verses in John 1 are actually a reflection on the first three verses of Genesis 1. So you'll probably hear similar themes and ideas. Be on the lookout for that as we read John chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 1-2, to entitled, The Identity of the Word. And so immediately we note that the, the first three words in John's account are, are actually a, a quote from the first three words of Genesis, the very first words of the Bible. So the first, very first sentence of the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is deliberately citing the opening words of the Bible. What's the significance of this? Well, he is describing for us the Son of God who, who dwelt among us, Jesus of Nazareth whom verse 1 describes as the Word, well, well, this man, Jesus, is the eternal Word of God. That's what we should take away from that first clause, in the beginning was the Word. You see, before there was the beginning, there was the Word. Before there was Genesis 1, there was time immemorial, there was eternity past, and there was the Word. He is the preexistent one who has always, eternally, existed. As one church father, Ambrose of Milan, wrote in the 4th century, in the beginning we are told God created heaven and earth, and the world was therefore created, and that which was not began to exist, referring to heaven and earth. But the word of God was in the beginning, and always was. What the Gospel of John is telling us, friends, is that at creation, before the creation of time and space, the Word was. Now this alone proves the divinity of the Word. If this Word, who again John later identifies as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, well if he existed before the creation of everything, then clearly this Word is a non-created thing. The Word is an eternal thing, a thing that has always existed, an attribute that only God possesses. And so from this very first clause of verse 1, we can logically deduce the eternality and thus the divinity of the word of God. But thankfully, John doesn't leave us to simply deduce this logically. No, he proves it more fully as the rest of verse 1 shows. Look there. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God. And the word was God. All right, so this is, you know, really we're going to stretch our brains here, right? This is mind-boggling. Notice that that John says the word was with God. What what could this mean? John's already asserted the eternality of this word. and, And now this word is beside or towards or with God. This must mean that the word is in some way separate and distinct from God. Yet he exists in harmony and in relationship with this God, right? He's, he's not opposed to God. He's not in antipathy with this God. No, he is. He's with him. And so your head might be swimming, right? Because there's God. Okay, I got that. He's always existed. He's eternal. That makes sense. And then there's this, this word, That's always and eternally existed. He was there when the beginning was created. Scott, this is sounding a lot like polytheism. Is that what you're saying, Scott? There are multiple eternal gods. Is that what what John is saying? Well, no. Because we see in that last clause of verse 1, and the word was God. Thus the deity of the word is again reinforced. Meanwhile, the notion of the word being an entirely different sort of being than God is cut down. As one commentator writes, the word was with God, God's eternal fellow, and the word was God, God's own self. Somehow this word is distinct from, yet identifies with God. And now this doctrine of the divinity of the word, namely the divinity of Christ, is sometimes disputed by groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, like the ones across the street. They argue that this last clause should be translated, the word was a god. Uh, However, this understanding doesn't work for at least three reasons, so just briefly. Uh, Number one, their translation is wrong because it misunderstands how Greek grammar works. Okay, so a Anarthur's predicate nominative preceding a copulative verb is almost always definite. Everyone knows that. If you, you look at any Greek grammar, you'll see that. Well, you don't have to know that to be a Christian by any means. You, you don't have to worry about that at all. But it is to know that at a most basic level, their translation and interpretation of John 1:1 is is quite simply a misunderstanding of Greek grammar and syntax and how it works. Uh, number two, verse Three will indicate that the word created all things. Yet if the word is a created thing, as the Jehovah's Witnesses insist that he is, then you can no longer say that the word created all things. Right? For the word to have created all things, he himself must not be a created thing. So the word must be a non-created, eternal, and divine being. And then third, the the first half of verse 1, again, has already proved the divinity of Christ. And Jesus himself will assert this in multiple places. So, for example, in John chapter 8, he'll tell the the Jewish crowds, Before Abraham was, I am. He he uses the proper name of God from the Old Testament, clearly asserting and affirming his own identity with God, his own divinity. So, friends, all, all that to say, your Bible is exactly right. When it translates, John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was God. But, but how do we put these truths together? Right, we've seen the eternality of the Word, the, the distinctness of the Word from God, and, and now the identity of the Word with God. How, what is going on? Well, in short, John 1.1 1, 1 gives us some of the central planks for the doctrine of the Trinity which is the Christian affirmation that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The the doctrine of the Trinity is really a a summary doctrine. Uh, It's putting together seven truths. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. There is one God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. I think I got them all. So the, the Trinity is something that Christians have confessed for 2,000 years. As the Athanasian Creed states, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son, that is the Word, is another, and that of the Holy Spirit, still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co Eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, know that before we can get to the incarnation of the Son of God, which is what Christmas is all about, you must first understand the preexistence of the Son of God. Though Jesus' life as a man began at conception and then was born in Bethlehem, yet that was decidedly not the beginning of the Son of God because he has no beginning. He is the eternal God. The eternal Word of God, with God and being God Himself. The second person of the Trinity always was, always is, and always will be. And so, if we are to rightly celebrate this Advent season, the truth of Christ's loving incarnation, we must first recognize the great depths that He's condescended. You know, the glory of Christmas is not that God sent down a really impressive celestial angel. The the glory of Christmas is that God himself came. Emmanuel, God with us. The eternal and divine word whom, as verse 2 reiterates, was in the beginning with God. He came down to bring us up into that Trinitarian fellowship of love. This is the identity of the eternal and divine word. And before we get to our second point, we should examine you know, why exactly John uses this title of the word or logos, right? So in the past, scholars have racked their brains saying, where did did John get this idea? So he said, okay, maybe it was Greek philosophy and Stoicism, or maybe it was Greek religion and Gnosticism. Well, I think much more compelling as a source for John's thinking is the Old Testament. That is, I think John is thinking theologically about his Bible. In the Old Testament, we find the Word of God primarily doing three things the Word of God creates, the Word of God reveals, and the Word of God saves. So in Genesis 1, eight times we read, And God said. And whatever God said, it was created. So Psalm 33, reflecting on this truth, states, By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And it stood firm. So God's word creates. God's word also reveals. So in 1 Samuel 3.21, after a long time of not hearing from the Lord, and then God finally speaking to the young prophet Samuel, we read, And the Lord... Appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So, according to 1 Samuel, if, if you want to know God, if you want Him to reveal Himself to you, you have to pay attention to His word. And finally, God's word saves or delivers. For example, Psalm 107 states, God sent forth his word and healed the sick. He rescued them from the grave. And so the reason that John describes the Lord Jesus as the word is precisely because all three of these realities find their their apex and consummation in him. Right? D.A. Carson writes, In short, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression and creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title to God's ultimate self-disclosure. The person of his own son. How does Jesus fulfill these three roles? We'll consider the word Jesus' role in creation in our next point. But consider how the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of God incarnate, perfectly reveals God. In John chapter 14, Jesus will tell Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he states in Matthew 11, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, friends, if you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God, He is God's self revelation. This means that all attempts to know God that don't center on the person and work of Christ are futile. Okay, so don't waste your time with horoscopes and dreams and false prophets and self-introspection. If you want to know God, that's a waste of time. Look at Christ and consider who he is. Right, I mean, you'd be foolish if you're beginning a new relationship with someone, maybe it's a friend or a dating relationship, and you say, I, I really want to get to know this person. I'm just going to disregard their word. I, I really want them to get to know, what are they like? I just don't care about what they say. Right? That wouldn't work. If you're dating, don't try that, right? So it is with God. His word is his self-revelation. And friends, know that God wants us to know him. Who took the initiative in revealing it? We didn't take it. No, it was God sending the Son. That's why Jesus came. That gazing at the Word made flesh, we might know God. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you're you're seeking after some glimpse of the divine, you're, you're searching for some meaning and message from the supernatural, consider Christ. Study him. He is God the Son incarnate, the very Word and revelation of God. And in Jesus Christ, as the eternal Word of God, we also have a a perfect and final salvation. Right? If God's Word was the instrument of salvation in the Old Testament, how how much more so in the New Testament do we have a, a perfect salvation accomplished by the Word made flesh? For in Christ we are freed from all our sins, We are released from bondage to the devil. We are given the hope of eternal life and resurrection. All this occurs through the mighty word of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Beloved, this is the identity of the word. And so let's turn now to our second section found in verses 3 to 5, entitled, The Activity of the Word. These verses continue to allude back to Genesis 1, and we see that clearly in verse 3. It reads, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, this is a fairly straightforward explanation of the word of God in creation. So, recall again that in Genesis 1, eight times we read, And God said, and then something happens. Light, plants, animals, whatever, and God, said, and God 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 said. Okay, so anyone reading Genesis 1 knows that, that God works, God creates through his word. But what John 1 verse 3 adds to our understanding is that God's word, with a capital W, well, this word is not an impersonal force, but a person. It's not the mere confluence of syllables and sounds, but it's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word of God who creates. And John isn't the only one to pick this up. So Colossians 1.16 states concerning Christ, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And Hebrews 1 comments, The sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we see that Christ as God's word is both the initial creating agent and the ongoing sustaining power of this universe. Friends, he created it, and he upholds it. He made it, and he rules it. And then we read in verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, again, John is simply continuing his meditation on Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read the first three verses of Genesis. See if you can hear some of the similar themes and repeated words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was fo- without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So first, John says that in the word was life. Now again, he's connecting this with Genesis. And I take John to mean that, that in the word, that, that the word is being. He is existence. He depends on nothing outside of himself for existence. As the father has life in himself... So the eternally begotten son has life in himself, such that the word is self-existent and has always been self-existent. Okay, so you and I don't have life in ourselves, right? We are dependent creatures. We depend on food, water, God to sustain us and give us life and breath and grace. But God is not dependent on anything else. Jesus is not dependent on anything or anyone else. He is entirely self-sufficient. This is what theologians describe as divine aseity. That while we deduce our life and derive it from other things, yet the word is life. And far from hoarding this life, he rather gives it. It overflows to mankind. That's what we see in the second clause of verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is, the vital power that is the word then imparts life-giving light to mankind. His life becomes humanity's existence and knowledge and truth and ability. So the Apostle Paul will state in Acts 17, In him we live and move and have our being. Okay, so D.A. Carson again comments, the self-existing life of the Word was so dispensed at creation that it became the light of the human race. He became the source of life and light for the human race. And thus verse 5 concludes, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's point seems to be that, you know, darkness had been over the face of the earth, God spoke his word, and ever since then, light has been shining. You know, when there was darkness and then God said, let there be light, the light overcame the darkness. The darkness didn't overshadow the light. Life and vitality has continually existed, subduing the darkness ever since then, thanks to God's word. This is the Word's activity in creation, which John has been highlighting for us. Uh, Literally and physically, he is the life and light of mankind, the creator of all things. And I don't think that's all that John wants us to know. Throughout the Gospel of John, there is this theme. This theme of statements about physical reality, really intending to communicate spiritual truths. So Jesus will often make comments about reality that at first blush seem to have to do merely with the physical and material realm. But upon further examination, are actually making a spiritual point. Right, so perhaps you know John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, this religious teacher, and he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Do you remember Nicodemus' reply? He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Will a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Okay, so he he just, he misses the point, right? Or in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking at a well with a woman, and he says, I have living water that can give to you so you'll never be thirsty again. Right, and and, and what's her response? She says, but where's your bucket? Like, she completely misses the point. Or in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he's, he's speaking to the crowds, and he says to them, I am the living bread, and if you feed on my flesh, if you drink my blood, you will have eternal life. And the crowd, right, the crowd goes nuts, right? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're completely missing the point. Throughout the Gospel of John, we must probe deeper than mere physical reality in these statements. We are encouraged to apprehend their spiritual truth that Jesus and John intend to teach us. So John chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 isn't just a meditation on the activity of the word in creation. It is a statement of the activity of the word in new creation. That is, Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate, not only gives physical life, but spiritual life. So John three sixteen states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus provides not only physical life, but spiritual life. You know, he gives physical life to all mankind. He gives eternal spiritual life to all who would believe. And this is possible because Jesus states in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. How does that happen? Very next words. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Oh, friend, take notice. To secure your eternal life, Jesus laid down his life. The eternal word took on human form. And more than that, he laid down his life so that you could take it up. And, and so, friends, this is what Christmas is all about. You know, the incarnation is great. That's what we celebrate every Christmas, every Advent season. It's great. But it's not in the end of itself. No, Jesus took on human form so that he could lay his life down. Because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all given ourselves to spiritual darkness and sin. God's given us life, physical life, to to glorify him and serve others. But instead, we've glorified self and served ourselves. And so what God has given namely a life he now requires. He now requires our very lives of us. Because of our rebellion against God, we owe to God our lives and we deserve death for our judgment. Yet Christ came to earth so that he might forgive our debt. He lived a life of perfect obedience, never earning death, what we have done, and then he voluntarily took it on himself. Having assumed a human form, he now laid down his life, bearing our penalty, bearing our judgment away as our substitute and our Savior. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. The darkness did not overcome the light. It rather shone forth in victory, proving to all who believe in Christ that they too would receive resurrection, eternal life. And so if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. I want you to consider the great lengths that God has gone to secure your salvation. Consider his great love and tenderness. Well, why would you deny Christ to your own harm and detriment when he stands offering his life? If you will not Turn and believe upon him, that is up to you. Oh, but would you believe? Would you trust in the eternal word, begotten of the Father, come to earth for you and for your salvation? This is the spiritual life that Jesus offers. What of the spiritual light that Christ offers in salvation? You know, he gives us physical life, physical light, spiritual life. What's the spiritual light? Uh, The theme of spiritual light, of light, is very prominent in next week's passage in Curtis's sermon. So if you want to hear more about that, come back next week. I won't steal Curtis's thunder here. Suffice it now to quote Jesus in John chapter 12. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Just as the word of God is light in the midst of the darkness of creation... So, too, the word of God incarnate gives spiritual light, revelation, and salvation to those who dwell in the darkness of sin. And so, brethren and sisters, friends, in all of this, notice the generosity and the kindness of God. Such is God's love that he's constantly giving, right? He gives us life and light, and then we spoil it, we ruin it with sin, and yet, then he still gives and offers life and light. He gives us breath and then gives us hope through Christ because his love has no bounds. It superabounds even to sinners such as us. Friends, this is the love of God made flesh, the revelation, the self expression of God's heart. And so, friends, as we conclude, as a means of response, you know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder, why would you not receive the gift of Christ's love? The Word, God's self-expression and revelation became flesh so that you could receive eternal life. That's why he came. And what, what is eternal life? Well, Jesus himself states in John chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Oh friend, if you've not believed in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've not trusted in him for the hope of eternal life, will you not do so today? And Christian, if you have received Christ's love and light, for you who have received it, do you display that same kind of generosity to those around you? You know, if nothing else, at its most foundational level... Christmas is a celebration of God's generosity. You know, we were ruined because of sin. He was generous because that's just who he is. I wonder if that's how your friends and neighbors would describe you, as generous. Sure, you know, this time of year with Christmas jingles blaring and the Salvation Army bell tolling, you know, we can all feel generous at times. But I wonder if your life, Christian, is marked by that same kind of generosity year-round. It's not a cheap generosity in word only. Instead, it's marked by commitment and sacrifice. With your time, Christian, are you quick to lend a helping hand to those in need? Or are you too busy to help the hurting? Do you have time for the sorrows and sufferings of others? Or is your free time only liberally given to entertainment? and recreation, and sports. Let us serve one another this Advent season and throughout the whole year, not only when it's convenient, but especially when it's not. And Christian, are you generous with your finances? You know, Christ became poor that we might become rich in him. Is your attitude towards money primarily one of hoarding it whenever you can? Like, oh, our expenses are lower this year, more money for me. Or is your attitude towards money of giving it away whenever you can? Oh, wow, a Christmas bonus. I wonder who I can bless with some of this. Brothers and sisters, in all these ways and many more, we have opportunity to display that same kind of sacrificial generosity that led the eternal word to take on flesh and not just assume our humanity, but to lay down his very life for us. This Advent season, as we reflect upon the life and the light that only Jesus brings, may God grant us grace to believe and accept these great gifts and then to emulate and give that same love to others. Let's pray.